bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> as we have received a, a perspective check this morning from thy word, we realize how important it is and how quickly our attention and focus can be taken elsewhere. And so, Heavenly Father, now we would ask for another portion from thy word, a message for our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> You'll have to bear with me this afternoon. I've got a bit of a tickle in my throat. One of the kids brought home a head cold, and I'm still getting over it. <clears throat> the word of the Lord opened to the seventh chapter of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 7. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. <clears throat> but ye say, if a man shall say to his father or his mother, it is korban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which ye have delivered. And many such like things do ye. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draft, purging all meats? And he said, 
that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come within, come from within and defile the man. I read until the 23rd verse. <clears throat> it's interesting to see how Christ taught when he was here. The things that he chose to emphasize, <clears throat> the things that he chose to focus on, it was so often in contrast to his opponents and those that were trying to uh, find fault with him. It's interesting to see that Christ had the greatest trouble with the Pharisees. The Sadducees are also mentioned, but it was the Pharisees really that he had the biggest problem with. <clears throat> and I find that interesting because I think that with the Sadducees it was obvious. They denied angels, they denied the resurrection. They were what we would call in, in, in today's language rationalists, denied the supernatural. There it was clear where they stood and where Christ stood. <clears throat> And so, he didn't seem to waste many words on them. There was a few times there were some questions that came to him, came to him that concerned them, such as uh, the, the woman that had been married to seven different men, and uh, so on. And, and Christ very quickly showed the problem with their way of thinking. It's almost as if, you know, like in, in warfare, if you ever go to any of these historical sites, especially the ones that we have around the Golden Horseshoe that have to do with the, uh, the period of the War of 1812 and so on, one of the features there is, is always the, the, the people dressed up in period costume and there's the, the redcoats, the British soldiers in full regalia, the big shackos and red woolen coats and bandoliers and everything. The reason, you know, if you look at them, they're much they're dressed totally different than, than soldiers on the battlefield today. <clears throat> Back then in the fog of war with black powder that they were using for their battles, uh, there was such a thick cloud of smoke that it was very difficult to tell who is your friend and who is your foe. And so the opposing armies Pick definite colors so you knew who was on your side and who was the enemy. And it seems that way also with the Sadducees. It was, it was clear. They were dressed in different uniform, as it were. Christ was on the side of the spiritual, not the carnal. The Sadducees had picked the side of the carnal and the philosophical, uh, taking their viewpoint from the Greeks. But the Pharisees were the worst. They were the worst because they were like false friends. 
you couldn't tell what uniform they were wearing. They dressed in the garb of the righteous and even taught things that were right and good. Jesus himself said, listen to what they say, what they tell you, but don't do what they do. And so it was often that the Pharisees were the ones that Christ was confronting. And we need to be careful. <clears throat> it was interesting, I think I've mentioned this once before, but when you read the history of the Jewish people, the Pharisees were actually the good guys. Read it for yourself. They were the ones who preserved the law in the face of this Greek invasion. They were the ones that held by the principles of God's word, of maintaining the Sabbath and not uh, knuckling under to a foreign pressure, not being willing to defile themselves. In fact, some of those stories remind me even a little bit of some of the stories we hear about our spiritual forebearers in Europe and how they did not back down or compromise in the face of uh, great danger and difficulty. That was the Pharisees. But the danger for them is the same, I think, as the danger for us. A good past, a good heritage, a good tradition carries with it dangers of its own. When we put too much stock in the tradition itself and not in the spirit of those who followed it, when we uh, maybe try to recreate the past, we can miss some very important things. I don't think those that know me are going to accuse me of <clears throat> being some kind of anti-traditionalist. We have many fine traditions and I'm a, a, a firm advocate for them. One of them is our Zion's Harp, which I find an incredibly beautiful hymnal. Uh, other practices, I think, we have, have proven themselves over time and have uh, produced good spiritual results for those that hold them in the proper way. So I'm not advocating the abandoning of tradition wholesale. But we need to be careful that we do not place either the past or traditions on a pedestal that they don't deserve. A tradition is only a means to an end, a pathway to, uh, in the, when we talk about traditions now in terms of scripture, a pathway to the fulfilling of scriptural teachings. Ways that we try to do that. And that's why traditions are not doctrine, they are separate. The doctrine doesn't change. The doctrine is the direct teaching of Christ. <clears throat> Let me give you one maybe um, straightforward example. Um, we have the teaching from Christ on how we are to handle differences in the church found in Matthew 18. You can read them for yourself. If you have a difference with a brother or a sister, you're to speak with them first privately to clear up that difference. To, verify that understanding. If they don't hear you, then you bring another witness or two that you can establish what the real problem might be and, and, and come to a, a proper conclusion. Now, this is something serious. This isn't just a little, I see it this way, you see it this way. This is something where we're talking about the Word of God now. 
something, something that has, has, has scriptural weight as well. If they don't hear them, then it says we need to bring it before the church. And if they will not hear the church, then scripture tells us they are to be to us as a heathen or a publican, separated from our assembly in terms of the spiritual fellowship of, of faith, not necessarily forbidden from entering the doors. <clears throat> okay, so that is the teaching. How is that fulfilled? Well, one of the traditions we have in our church circles is we, we believe in not fraternizing, and that is a, just a fancy word to mean behaving brotherly with Christians of other fellowships. Now, why do we do that? Well, if you want to fulfill the doctrine, the teachings of Christ, where it goes through this, this path of, um, uh, of reconciliation, right? Speaking first to someone individually, then with some witnesses, then put them outside of the church. If there is no definable fellowship, how are you going to separate anyone from anything? There must be, of course, some kind of a limit to the fellowship if they are to be separated from it. So there's an example, I think, of a tradition that we have found, which is things like not marrying outside of the apostolic Christian church. Now, that doesn't mean that other people cannot enter our fellowship, but this is the tradition that we have, and we keep that, and that is done in a way of also fulfilling the doctrine of maintaining a, a fellowship that believes the same things and can practice Matthew 18 in its proper context. But anytime these things get elevated above something, above Scripture, we're in, in danger. And this is exactly what the Pharisees had done. They had created their own traditions, not as aids to fulfill the commandment of God, but actually to circumvent the commandment of God. False friends indeed. They had created back doors to get around some of the problems, problems at least in their eyes, <clears throat> of what the, what the law was teaching them. And he gives different examples. Of course, eating with unwashed hands, they had a tradition of washing. That was a good tradition. Nothing wrong with washing. We tell our kids, wash your hands before you sit down to the table. But when that became something that they used as ammunition to find fault with the teachings of Christ and with his person, they were really off the track. And it seems like they were really fixated on this issue of washing. Why aren't they washing? Why aren't they, they, should, they should wash. They should wash. Finally, Christ had to, had to point out to them that what they were doing was hypocritical. You're choosing little things in which you think you are honoring God, and you're letting the big things go. Full well, you reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. I find that <clears throat> phrasing interesting, your own. How hard do we hang on to our own opinions? We're all good at it, I think. And sometimes, even when someone points out something that's wrong with our way of thinking, or with our way of doing things, often it's our pride that keeps us from changing, isn't it? None of us like to be wrong. 
How much worse when it comes to the things of God? We really need to be careful, brothers and sisters, about the opinions we hold and how firmly we hold them. Sometimes we may make a big issue out of something that is really a trivial matter, and sometimes we may let something important go uh, pretending that it's trivial. The errors can happen in, on, on both sides. When God seems to be showing us that we need to change, we need to do something different, we need to be very careful we don't make excuses for ourselves so we can keep our own ways, our own opinions. It's interesting that <clears throat> Christ singles this out as being hypocritical. Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. And isn't that the case? When we start bending the ways of God to suit our own fancy, don't we end up being hypocrites? Don't others end up seeing that? We may be able to look proper in church one day a week, but our children see us the rest of the week. And if on Sundays we pay lip service to the things of God and the importance of the things of God, but during the week we live according to another set of priorities, they will see that. We will be exposed as hypocrites in their eyes. And nothing is a sure way to kill uh, spiritual uh, vision than hypocrisy. If you want to make the whole thing stink in the nose of your children, be hypocritical. It's the best way to make them avoid whatever you've been, whatever you say you're trying to teach them. And that's, that's something for myself as well. I need to look at it and say, well, what, do my, what do my children see during the week? What do they see that my priorities are? What are the things that make me upset? What are the things that I let slide? What are the inconsistencies in my life? When I come to a decision point do I look to God's word? Or do I ask other people? Not that there's anything wrong with asking other people, but where are my priorities? If I say, <clears throat> especially if I stand up here in this wooden box and tell you that what the Lord says is, is, is the important thing that we, draw our, we, we align our lives by, and yet my children in the day-to-day -day see that, well, Dad doesn't really practice exactly what he preaches. When he wants to find things out, he looks at Google or he goes to ask other people <clears throat> or he seems to do things the same way the neighbors do them. This also is a perspective check. You've heard me say it before and I imagine I'll still say it many times to come. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. The more I think about that statement, the more I believe that that really is very true. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. If you think God can be hoodwinked and tricked, if you have a low opinion of God, you are a low man or a low woman. You will never rise to what God expects of you.
However, if you have a good, a high, a proper, a holy vision of, of Almighty God, you will rise to what God wants you to be and do. We see it with Christ. The Pharisees were concerned not with the souls of men, but with the washing of hands, keeping a tradition from their elders and missing the important cleansing work that Christ had come to do. They missed the heart of God. And in missing the heart of God, they missed the blessings of God and they missed the plan of God and were excluded from that. We heard this morning from Ephesians and, and <clears throat> it's thrilling to read those words of the Apostle Paul when he talks about these high things. And it, it, the, those, those verses that we read together, let me just requote them. There's, there's two parts that stood out to me. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3 from this morning. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Stop there for a minute. To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. The mystery, as was explained to us this morning, was all things coming together in Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. Scientists have been looking for hundreds of years at least for, for a master theory, a master equation that would explain everything, that would tie everything together. Einstein spent his life looking for one. His theory of relativity, he felt, was a part of it, but he was looking for something more, something that would really just tie it, finally tie it all together, some way of relating everything to its... To, 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 it, uh, to, to everything else. And this mystery, how these things are really going to come together in one, was finally revealed in Christ Jesus. That this is what all men were going to see through the church. It was going to be the proof of the master theory that showed that Christ was all and in all. And it has been seen in little ways in the past. And the world has marveled where they have noticed it. Whether it was in the former Yugoslavia, the, the believers, the Nazarenes, they were known as, as a, uh, a group that was at odds with the rest of the society around them. Um, the, the phrase balkanized still means to be fragmented, right? But in that area where racial and, and, and religious tensions ran high, in the Church of the Nazarenes, where they gathered, there were Germans, there was Hungarians, there were Romanians, there were Serbians, there were Croats, all together, calling each other brother, not only calling each other brother, but being willing to sacrifice for one another and even to suffer together. And the world marveled at this mystery. How can this be? Tito's great goal was to unify the Slavs into one country, Yugoslavia. He couldn't do it. It died. He died and it fell apart. 
Men today still look for ways to pull it all together. One of my favorite group of missionaries are the Moravians. <laughs> we just had our Truth and Reconciliation Day a few days ago. What a farce when the world tries to produce reconciliation. I read comments to try to foist guilt for something on people that were not even around back then. It's ridiculous. And even the ones that suffered said the whole thing rings hollow to them. So what was this in aid of anyway? Let me tell you a little bit about the Moravians. They're known by many names. One name that they had was the Jesus Indians of Ohio. They were a group of Native Americans who laid down their weapons to follow Christ. They were taught by missionaries who lived among them, who showed them the way of this simple teacher from Nazareth. They were believers who laid down their lives for the cause of the gospel. Let me give you one short example. In an area in central Ohio that they called Gnadenhütte, it's the name of their town, the Moravian missionaries were German. During the American War of Independence, the tensions with the Indians also ran high. And in this area, there was a number of these believing Indians that were pushed out of their home. They had to leave behind their crops and so on. And their children and their, their, their women were starving. So when they deemed that it was prudent to do so, they snuck back to where they had been before to gather together their harvest to survive the winter. They were caught by a bunch of continental soldiers, tricked, locked up, and then they were to be executed the next day. Men, women, children. These were not, this was not a war party. The one request those Indians had was that they may have communion to confess their faults one to another that night and to sing together. And in the morning, they were brutally killed. There was only a few that survived under the pile of bodies. People that believed in this kingdom. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Think about it. Continental soldiers who didn't want to waste bullets on these Indians and so instead clubbed them to death. And these believers in Christ, willingly laying down their lives as their Lord had done before them. Who are the savages? Who are the Christians? That's the kind of spectacle that the church is to be to the world. 
In the in-between times when things are at relative peace, it's maybe not so apparent. It's only noticed in the finer, finer details. But if we are not willing to put our lives under the microscope of God's Word, to consider the things that He really tells us, to avoid flee hypocrisy, to seek the correct perspective of this world and not to run after the jewels and the trinkets of this world that we can't take with us anyway. If we're not willing to do that in the time of peace and plenty, we'll be exposed. We'll be exposed as hypocrites, as the Pharisees were. False soldiers of Jesus Christ. And when we are tested in the battle, in the fire, we'll fold. Unless, unless we've been checking ourselves against the Word of God, unless we've been doing, as Scripture tells us, to prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. To live that consistent life, the example that the world needs to see. The church is the vanguard, as the Holy Spirit is the down payment to the believer. The church is the down payment to the millennium. Did you realize that? The church is to show the world what it will look like when Christ comes to reign. That's why Christ could say his kingdom had come already and had come into the hearts of men and women. That's a big thought. That's a tall order. But it's what we've been called to. And the peace that will result from the followers of Christ following his vision, being part of his kingdom, will be apparent to the world. In times of peace, it may not be so obvious, but it will be tested as it has been tested in the past. And so far, like Brother Edmund said last weekend, we got off pretty easy. We haven't been tested too hard. That day may be coming. I don't know. I don't hope for it. But I pray that we would all be faithful to the one who called us. That the world may know the glory that is to be revealed in his church. May the Lord add whatever was lacking. I heard it said once by an American preacher, not from our fellowship, that the devil had created a, a doctrine perfectly tailored for the American mindset. And he called it the doctrine of the carnal Christian. That it could be that one would make a decision for Christ, but then if they wandered back into sin and stayed there, they were just a carnal Christian. The Pharisees show me the importance not just of a good beginning, but a good end. Faithfulness is spoken of much in Scripture. Christ himself spoke about it. Servants that faithfully waited for the return of their Lord. We're fooling ourselves if we think 
like the unfaithful servant did. My, my master delayeth his coming, and he began to drink with the drunken and to beat the, his fellow servants. Christ, one of the things Christ came to show us is the secret to living a sinless life. And it's very simple. Practice the presence of God. That's it. Christ said, I always do those things that please my Father, and I always look to my Father before I speak. He was so conscious of his Father's presence that he never sinned. Wouldn't it be the same with us if we were conscious of God's presence 100% of the time? If you knew that your Lord and Savior was there with you in the moment, would you do or say some of the things that you do or say? I wouldn't. But I forget. I don't have a sufficiently high idea of God yet. I think sometimes maybe he's like me and he doesn't notice things. Or he may not be paying attention at this moment. When the truth of scripture is, he sees it all. He's right there. You know, in the garden, when God said to Adam, where are you? That wasn't for God's benefit. That was for Adam's. Where have you put yourself? Do you think you've removed yourself from my presence? Do you think I don't know where you are? That's the danger, I think, that we face. And if we will remember that God is who he says he is, we'll know not only what it is like to walk without sin, but we will also know the joy of the continuing presence of God with us. You realize that Christ never had to look for affirmation or encouragement from anyone else? Can you imagine that? Being able to walk alone, not having to worry about what other people thought of you or what decision to make because he always looked to his Father? The one time we see him in crisis was in the garden where he came to the point and had to say, Father, not my will, but thine be done. And I'm so thankful that that's recorded for us. We can see how he laid down his will at his father's feet, that his father's will could be done. What made it so difficult for him? Was it just the pain of the cross? No. We understand it better when we hear that great cry of his, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the one thing that he was afraid of, that God would forsake him, that he would be alone without his father. Would that be the one fear that we would have as well, that we would lose communion with our loving Father? If we stay close to him, if we have a sufficiently high vision of how great he really is, we will experience already heaven here. We will already be walking with him in courts of glory here. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said, and may he dismiss us with his presence and peace.
Amen.